are halfway through a January that has been largely dry and gray here in the capital region. Despite the disappointing weather, though, there's a lot going on, both inside and outside the newsroom. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. This is a bell that is very, very hard to unring. We'll say farewell to one of our most prolific reporters in recent years, breaking news hound Pete DeMola. I am really proud of helping to form uh, our rapid response team. And we'll get a little peek at a brand new Times Union podcast about one of the region's most famous unsolved mysteries, the disappearance of Jalik Rainwalker. They closed the back door, he got in the front seat and they took off and I went into my class. And that was the last time we saw Jalik. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, now let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. All right, we're back again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. We're going to talk about the top stories this week. Let's start with the rejection by the State Senate Committee of Governor Hochul's nominee for the state's top court's top position. What happened there? It was a bit dramatic. What happened was a historic uh, rejection for Governor Kathy Hochul and her nominee to fill the post of chief judge of the state, and that's Appellate Justice uh, Hector LaSalle, who in a high-stakes five-hour Wednesday hearing of the state Senate's Judiciary Committee tried to, you know, defend his uh, decisions, uh, explain his temperament, assure the majority Democratic panel that he was in favor of women's uh, reproductive rights and committed to uh, working people and the labor movement, but uh, he narrowly lost the vote in the end. It's a 19-member committee, the Judiciary Committee, and it voted uh, 10 to 9 to not move his nomination ahead, which would uh, result in him getting a floor vote in the, you know, the full 63-seat Senate chamber. Now, this involved a number of Republicans who voted to move the nomination, but without rec, without recommendation, as they say. There were only uh, two Democrats who voted for him, one who voted to advance the nomination without rec. The rest of the votes uh, without rec were Republicans, but a lot of Democrats lined up against him voting no. This is a direct rebuke to the governor. Now we have the lingering question and debate over whether or not the state constitution requires 
LaSalle to get a vote on the floor where it is likely that he um, has a certainly a better chance of getting confirmed if uh, Republicans flip. Now, Andrea Stewart-Cousins says that her understanding is similar to a bill that dies in committee. If a nomination is voted down by the the appropriate legislative committee, that's it. It's done. It's not getting to the floor. Uh, Hochul has, uh, according to a report from our former colleague, Chris Bragg, been in search of a litigator who uh, might want to uh, bring a case against the legislature to press for uh, a full, full vote on the floor of the Senate. I will say based on my experience, which is, you know, about 15 years of, of uh, covering or observing state government, that especially going back to the coup crisis about 14 years ago now, uh, state courts have shown a real reluctance to meddle in the internal protocols and workings of a co-equal branch of government like the state Senate. They also rarely involve themselves in these types of procedural disputes between the governor and the legislature. So highly dramatic, all happening, of course, during uh, as we enter into state budget negotiating season. So the the big question is whether or not Governor Hochul wants to uh, fish or cut bait, as they say. The cut bait would be, uh, of course, cutting loose the nomination of Hector LaSalle and moving on to a nominee who might have more support in the legislature. She's facing lots of criticism that she uh, and her people failed to line up an appropriate amount of support for LaSalle before announcing her nomination of him right before Christmas. All right. Well, stick by our Capital Confidential section on timesunion.com for more on that as it develops. Uh, Let's move on to some business news. In the last decade or so, the capital region, big news here has been, you know, interest by chip fabs moving into the region and, you know, setting up shop and setting up headquarters, et cetera. But that may pose a problem for our power grid. Can you tell us what we reported this week? Yeah, Rebecca Ward has been working on this story for for quite a while, a really comprehensive look at how we are we're currently in a race, a race between um, these large chip fab projects, which the state wants and desires and is uh, supporting with uh, up to $10 billion in uh, tax incentives to bring them in. You know, we're talking about the Micron project uh, out near Syracuse. We're talking about a new chip fab at Global Foundries here in the capital region up in Malta. So the race is between those projects coming online and requiring huge amounts of electricity to do the complex manufacturing involved in, you know, pumping out these chips and the the fact that the state is also trying to move very quickly to take old fossil fuel sources of energy offline. So the big question that Rebecca looked at is uh, just how the state is going to fill that gap. In other words, as the, the bathtub of fossil fuel energy is drained, uh, what is going to uh, fill it back up again that these uh, plants will be able to uh, to dine on, as it were? Elected officials, including the governor's office and Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer, have said, don't worry, there will be ambitious, large 
uh, renewable sources of energy that are going to come online. But uh, without a doubt, it is going to stretch the state's um, power grid to the point that you have some warning that, you know, without the sufficient, you know, replacement of this energy, the state could be in line for brownouts, which, of course, is a situation that nobody wants to get in, especially during a northeastern winter. Certainly not. And if you head over to timesunion.com, there is a very, very striking photo on that story uh, of the uh, president and CEO of the New York Independent System Operator looking over the grid at headquarters. It's a very dramatic yeah, great, photo. Great work by Jim Franco um, with that image. Very striking, without a doubt. Absolutely. All right, let's move on down to Green County, uh, where the town of Cairo, which pronounced Cairo, but spelled like Cairo, Egypt. Uh, we have a nice little video explainer on that. Um, the town kind of made a bit of a math error or multiple math errors that led to a monumental increase in property taxes. What's going on over there? Yeah, so the the town uh, uh, voted, the town town leaders voted to increase the property tax levy, which is the total dollar amount that it collects by half a percentage point, 0.5%. But due to what is allegedly a bookkeeping error, they raised it by 7.5% in 2023, which <laughs> needless to say, blows out the state's imposed tax cap of 2.3% uh, by a little bit more than 300%. Please don't check my math on that one. <laughs> it's now, a big number. Regardless. It's a big number. Yes, exactly. And and this is a bell that is very, very hard to unring. And uh, the situation has resulted in a flurry of finger pointing by, by town officials you know, many of whom feel justifiably chagrined by the fact that they will be um, uh, soaking property taxpayers like this. And the problem is they can't just undo it. They can't just recalculate and say, whoopsie daisy, you don't owe us 3x, you only owe us x. Instead, what they are saying now, although there is some dispute about this, is that they are going to have to put those funds aside uh, and that will result in the deferral, the foregoing of a number of capital improvements, repairs, maintenance on public facilities over the course of this year. So a big mess uh, that is being blamed on bookkeepers, the former administration, you name it. But uh, definitely rough times for the people of Cairo. Certainly, certainly. So on that note, let's move on to some happier news. Uh, the best of nominations, our annual best of contest, the nominations open next week. What can you tell us? What can we look forward to? Well, we're constantly trying to uh, keep the list of categories fresh. And so this year we are adding a baker's dozen of new ones, and they include best breakfast sandwich, and that is single location kids, uh, best tacos, also single location, uh, best food truck. As a former denizen of the state capitol, I have very strong opinions about that, but I will keep them to myself. <laughs> best DJ, best concert venue, and best venue for theater, and best local musician and music group, which is sort of a, a freshening of uh, some previous categories we had. Best local actor, best Ooh. local historic site, and uh, best chiropractor. Wow. So there you go. 
Those are all categories that I'm sure residents of the Capital Region have great recommendations and strong feelings about. So uh, I look forward to seeing their nominations. How long, Jess, until Best Cannabis Dispensary is uh, going to be on our best of list? Uh, Could we be a year away? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, think we need, I think we'll need a little bit more of a uh, of a retail infrastructure there, but yes, yeah, certainly within the next three years, I would say most likely. All right. Well, we'll we'll reconvene then and talk about that when it happens. All right, Casey. Thank you so much. We'll check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at TimesUnion.com. In early 2021, which seems like ages ago, the newsroom started a rapid response team. That is, a rotation of reporters who took on stories about trending topics in the community, everything from rare bobcat sightings to the spike in business for mechanics after an ice storm, and the reason Christmas trees were so scarce this year. One of the first reporters to take on the rapid response team mantle was Pete DeMola, Almost two years later, he defined that beat and has written many of the most popular stories on our website. Sadly, Pete's moving on from the Times Union, but I caught up with him just before he left to take a look back at his time with us. You're leaving us. We're very sad, but you've had some pretty good times here. So let's talk about some of the highlights of your time at the Times Union. In terms of highlights, where do we even start? I mean, I am really proud of helping to form uh, our rapid response team, which really quickly just takes the news of the day, the trends of the day. You know, not only do we try to break that news, uh, but we really try to just flesh it out and find unique angles. So where, where to begin? Just a few weeks ago, I was walking around Christmas tree farms, just trying to find out why Christmas trees were out of stock so early in the season, right? Uh, And it turns out because of the economic recession 15 years ago that affected the planting of these trees. And now, you know, 12 to 15 years later is when a tree reaches full maturity, right? Was it a highlight? I don't know, but every day is just something unique. But you also, in addition to the rapid response team duties that you have, you've also covered Schenectady extensively, right? Can you talk about some of your favorite memories uh, or most impactful memories about your your time covering Schenectady? You know, I think the most fulfilling part of the job of whatever you cover and uh, the, the smaller things and the things that directly impact people's lives. And for me, the biggest joy that I've had whether it be rapid response or covering Schenectady, is being out in the community and actually talking to regular people about their concerns, about their aspirations, uh, about their dreams, about their concerns, about their fears, about their lives. And some of my favorite memories have been in the city's Hamilton Hill neighborhood in Schenectady, where I've just walked around the neighborhood and I've gotten to know people. Uh, Last summer, I uh, was in Hamilton Hill uh, doing a story on uh, the city was cracking down on illegal building modifications like carports. And the city uh, codes office had just been going through and issuing tickets, uh, saying these structures are illegal. Schenectady is a really dynamic uh, culturally. It's diverse, which is what has kept me there. 
these entire neighborhoods are, are full of uh, people from the Caribbean and from Guyana. And then they're saying, this is part of our culture. So I'm walking down the street and I'm getting to know people and they're like, yes, this is an issue. Go talk to so-and-so. They have a carport. They're getting ticketed. They have to tear it down. So I'm in the neighborhood and I'm getting invited into people's homes and I'm sitting there and we're talking and they're explaining their culture and you know we're meeting each other and then I'm meeting more people and I'm getting more story ideas. So that's very fulfilling. That's one example. I do want to talk about a story that actually did with you. Well, you did yes. the story, but I did a podcast on the story that you did, which did quite well, um, I think, for us, you know, and our traffic and the audience interest in it. And it was the solving of a 41-year-old mystery of a John Doe. Um, do you want to kind of just quickly reminisce about that? Yeah, that's also one of my career highlights. And I'm really glad that we got to work together on that. 40 some odd years ago, uh, a guy uh, was found in a field by a farmer. He was fixing his fence uh, in the town of Bethlehem and uh, he saw a leg sticking out of the ground, which led to a 40 year mystery. And occasionally it would pop up in the news uh, and uh, it's occasionally just been in the public eye as a, a fascinating unsolved mystery. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, they solved it. They announced it. They had a press conference, and they, uh, the people who worked diligently for years behind the scenes, ended up uh, using familial DNA advances to uh, identify this John Doe as Franklin Feldman. To make a long story short, uh, here in, in the Capital Region, this is like a groundbreaking uh, case uh, for identifying remains through uh, familial DNA, and we worked on that and i think it came together great with the the writing and the the podcast uh which is probably one of the greatest podcasts that i've listened to (laughs) uh, whether it be the eagle or anywhere else so yeah that was really really interesting to work on do you have any other favorite stories favorite memories thoughts about your time at the tu there's also been longer term stories i've worked on you know examining everything from the closure of Adirondack prisons to the survival of Italian import businesses here in the capital region, studying people who still use cooking oil. Uh, that was one of the first podcasts that you ever did with I us. We so. talked about the grease heist. The grease heist was one. <laughs> uh, another story I'm particularly proud of, uh, one that I worked on with Rachel Silberstein, was a story about how uh, nightlife establishments didn't sell Hennessy. Mm. as a tacit way to uh, bar people of color from attending their venue. But ultimately, uh, another huge part of the job is just being full of gratitude for the people who talk to me because, again, being on this rapid response uh, beat and being uh, a breaking news reporter, being a police reporter, and being a Schenectady reporter, you unfortunately have to cover... Uh, crime and, and you have to talk to people on the worst days of their lives. So I've written more obituaries uh, that I've cared to calculate. So I thank every grieving family member that I've ever spoken to who has shared a moment of their life with me, the hardest moments of their life with me to tell the story of their loved one. Tanisha uh, Brathwaite's family, uh, she was a woman who tragically was struck and killed last September in Albany in a hit and run. And her family kept at it and they're, they're from Brooklyn and they would come up and they would put pressure on the authorities and they made an arrest. You know, I'm 
happy if our work kind of expedited the arrest of the suspect. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the Glenville Bridge. Ah, uh, yes, the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> you know, spoiler alert, I don't think that thing is ever going to get solved. We <laughs> reporters try not to speculate, and that's something I've always lived by. But uh, as Casey always says, whenever that thing is struck and I have to write about it, this is the last time that this will ever happen, right? <laughs> yes, I believe he has said that on this podcast in those very words. Yeah, so um, there's always going to be the Glenville Bridge. After the break, 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished without a trace from Washington County in 2007. We'll hear a segment of our deep dive into one of the region's most famous unsolved mysteries. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. This week, the Times Union launched a brand new podcast. It's called Rainwalker, The Lost Boy. It explores the mysterious disappearance of 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker, He vanished without a trace in 2007 from the Washington County village of Greenwich. His case was ruled a probable homicide, but no suspects were ever named. Our seven-part series delves into the life, disappearance, and 15-year search for Jalik. Here's a segment of the first episode. Before we begin, a word of caution. The story we are about to tell involves situations that may be very disturbing to some listeners. So please take care as you listen. During Katie Bonesteel's first month as a waitress at the Red Robin restaurant in Latham, New York, she majorly messed up an order. Like she got it, had to call the manager wrong. It was my, I had just started waitressing and back in 2007, this place was hopping. This was before the recession. I'd gotten the job when I was in college. This place was, there was always a wait to get in. It was newer to the area. I think it had only been here like two years. So it was crazy and um, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. So, but I... Pretty quiet. Is this quiet enough for you, Jess? Or? Yeah, let's go. I hate to like put you guys That's in the fine. corner there, but yeah, well, seems like this is a little bit better. Quiet. Wendy Libertor and I yeah. met Katie Bonesteel at the Red Robin recently so. to relive the night of her epic screw up. Yeah. It was November first, two thousand seven. Katie Bonesteel remembers many of the details. She was 20 then, studying full-time at nearby Siena College. The Red Robin post was a new side gig. Here's how it went down, according to Katie. Around 7.30 on November 1st, a pair of customers were seated in her section. One 
was a stockyish white man who looked to be in his 30s. He was bald. He had a beard below his neck. The other was a lanky, mixed-race boy with golden skin, blonde hair, and bright green eyes. He looked to be about 12. She says only the man spoke when she took their order. On the other side of the booth, the boy stayed silent. He was like pushed up in the corner. You know, he didn't sit in the center of the booth. He sent, sat pushed up in the corner of the booth and he was quiet the entire time. To Katie Bonesteel, the whole thing felt off. Nonetheless, she stuck to her recent training and took their order. Do you remember what they ordered? I feel like there was some appetizers, there was a milkshake or something like that. That's the only thing that I really remember. Whatever it was that they ordered, she brought them the wrong food. The details are hazy. But she recalls that it was enough that the manager on duty needed to step in. Part of their meal ended up being comped. The man seemed annoyed, but remained largely polite, maybe a little condescending. He paid their discounted bill, and then the pair left. It was about 8 p.m., or a little thereafter. A few days later, when she was off duty, Katie Bonesteel got a call from her manager. She had to come to the restaurant immediately. The state police wanted to talk to her. Yeah, like, did I run a red light? Like, I had no idea why the state police wanted to speak with me at work. And when I got there, they said, you know, you served this, um, you know, this man, this, this young boy. And I instantly knew who it was because of you know, the fact that I had messed up their order, which seems to be written in the stars, I guess, because otherwise I probably wouldn't have remembered them because, you know, you serve so many people. The police wanted to talk to her because she was one of the last people to see that 12-year-old boy before he disappeared. His name was Jalik Rainwalker. More than an hour earlier, on the evening of November 1st, 2007, Jalik Rainwalker was not with the man Katie Bonesteel described from the restaurant. He was with Elaine Person. Jalik had been staying with Elaine and her husband Tom at their house in the Albany suburb of Altamont for the previous six days. Elaine's now in her 70s. She has long gray hair and has some mobility issues. But she and her husband have been foster parents for nearly 40 years. They fostered dozens of children, and they legally adopted seven of them. They also often offered respite care to other foster and adoptive parents. Little spells of relief here and there for whatever reason, and many times specifically for children with behavioral issues. 
Elaine Angelique pulled into the parking lot of 1228 Western Avenue in Albany in Elaine's car just before 7 p.m. At the time, it was a Best Western hotel, just across the busy thoroughfare from the entrance to the University at Albany campus. Elaine was headed to a class at the university that evening and had agreed to drop Jalik off there with his father. We showed up here just before um, 7 o'clock and Jalik said, hey, there's my father's car. So we went over to the van. It was a gold Chrysler town and country van. And his father wasn't in it, but we tried the door and the door was unlocked. So Jalik took all his things and opened the back door and, and put all his things in on the seat. And that's when his father came out of the hotel. Apparently, he'd gone in to use the, the bathroom. His father was the same bald, bearded man Katie Bonesteel would encounter within the hour. His name? Stephen Kerr. He says to Jalik, Jalik, get in the front seat. And, and I didn't think anything of it. And... Um, they closed the back door, he got in the front seat, and they took off, and I went into my class. And that was the last time we saw Jalik. During the last week of October of 2007, Elaine and Tom were taking care of Jalik. They were providing respite care for the couple who'd adopted him four years earlier, Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald. He had had such a good time um, with us during that week. He was extremely well behaved. Um, we had gone to um, a haunted attraction at the Altamont Fairgrounds um, the night before with my babysitter's 10-year-old son and the two of them had a fantastic time. They were extremely well behaved. Um, we, it wasn't like we did a whole lot of, of things um, during that week he was with us. You know, we mostly just hung out at the house because he wasn't going to school, but he was just ex extremely well behaved in, in terms of um, you know his interaction with us and, and with the other boys. That seems like a far cry from the reticent, anxious-looking child that Katie Bonesteel described meeting about an hour later at the Red Robin. And if you didn't know any better, you'd think Katie and Elaine were describing two different children. Rainwalker, The Lost Boy, was produced and edited by Wendy Libertor and myself. We had help from Lauren Stanforth, Susan Mahalik, Lori Todd, Erica Smith, Tom Crocker, Jeff Shearer, and Casey Seiler. The theme song is As You Make the Bed by Amos Noah. New episodes of Rainwalker, The Lost Boy drop Tuesday mornings. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check out timesunion.com for timelines, photos, and additional information that we talk about in the podcast. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Pete DeMola, and Wendy Libertor for their contributions to this episode.